0: Good morning. My name is Jeremy Holdsworth, and I'm an elder here. My privilege to do the scripture reading this morning for the sermon. Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 6. You can stand. So it's just four verses, Luke 6, starting with verse 27 and 28. should be on page 863 in the Pew Bible. Luke 6, 27. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Down to verse 37. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. You may be seated. Let's take a minute to reflect on God's word.
1: Super Bowl Sunday is next week. I'm sure most of you are looking forward to it, are you not? So allow me to use a Super Bowl analogy. I don't use a lot of football analogies, but I want to use one this week. Perhaps the most well-known professional f- person person in professional football is a guy named Vince Lombardi. Vince Lombardi. Vince Lombardi was the coach of the Green Bay Packers, the great Green Bay Packers. And he is the coach who led the Green Bay Packers to the first two Super Bowls back in 1966 and 1967. So Super Bowl one, Green Bay Packers won, the coach was Vince Lombardi. Super Bowl two, the Green Bay Packers won, and the coach was Vince Lombardi. And next Sunday will be Super Bowl 56. And either the Cincinnati Bengals or the Los Angeles Rams are going to win. And when they win, they're going to presented a, be presented a trophy And you'll never guess what the name of the trophy is, the Vince Lombardi Trophy. So Vince Lombardi is a very famous football person, and one time he was doing a clinic for football coaches during the offseason, and all these young coaches sort of piled in the room to hear the great Vince Lombardi. And one thing about the Green Bay Packers in those two years particularly, uh, they were known for was something called the Green Bay Sweep. The Green Bay sweep. This is basically the play where the quarterback takes the ball from the center, he pitches it out to the running back, and the running back sweeps around the end. It's not a very complicated play, but this is the play the Green Bay Packers perfected. This is the play that the Green Bay Packers mastered. This is the play the Green Bay Packers ran over and over and over again and everybody knew they were gonna run the this same play many times during the the football game but they had it down to perfection and so one summer at this clinic all these young coaches are piling in and they want to hear from the great Vince Lombardi they want to hear his coaching strategy now try to imagine for one entire day not session you know, there's a morning session, a break, and then an afternoon session. For one entire day, they got to hear Vince Lombardi, and for that entire day, both sessions, he explained one play. The Green Bay Suite. Imagine, you get there at 9 o'clock, you can't wait. For three hours, this guy talks about one play. Takes a break, and you come back, okay, we got that play down. What about other parts of being a Super Bowl championship? He, he explained that play again for three more hours. One whole day on one play, because he knew if you got that one play perfected, if you got that one play mastered, that could carry you a long way to the Super Bowl. Now, for those of you who are now falling asleep because you don't like NFL football or the Super Bowl, I want to try to transition to our text. Luke chapter 6 is the one play, if you're a follower of Christ, you must master. It's a play that you're going to be asked to run again and again, all the way till you see Jesus. And so we couldn't take too much time to talk about it because it is the play that is the play in the Christian playbook. And that play comes from verse 36. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. That's the play. Jesus is teaching his disciples. They've just, he's just recruited these 12 young disciples. He's teaching them in this little space of Luke 6 and 7. as part of this mini-Sermon on the Mount. And he stops in verse 36 to basically say, Hey, guys, this is the play. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. All the diagramming and all the adjustments that you're going to have to make to this play are packed around that one verse. And for for the follower of Jesus, mercy is at the center of reality. Mercy is the play that we run over and over. Tim Keller talks about this in his sermon on Galatians chapter 6. And he says this, look at the Old Testament temple. In the Old Testament, and specifically in 1 Kings, God lays out a very specific diagram for the Old Testament temple or the tabernacle. And he asks this question, what is at the very center of of the temple? God has all these outer court, inner court, candles, all these things, but what's at the very center? You know what it is? It's the mercy seat. This is the very center of who God is. It's a, it's a way of saying to everyone who in, enters in, hey, what you get with God, what is at the very heart of God is mercy. This is why it's the play that we're going to have to run over and over. And so in the center of the temple is the Ark of the Covenant, you know? The Ark of this golden, golden box, and inside the box is the law, the Ten Commandments. And God comes to sit on this mercy seat, they call it, to to judge. And he's judging according to the law. But as God descends to judge, what happens in between God's dissension and the law? Sacrificial blood is sprinkled on top of that lid. It's a way of God saying, hey, my life for yours. This is the mercy seat. When you come to God, it's going to be, God's going to say, hey, it's my life for yours. If you wanted to brand yourself as a Christian, here's your tagline. My life for yours. Be merciful, even as God has given you mercy, has shown you mercy. Since God has said to you as a follower, my life for yours. Then you, as a follower of Christ, when you come towards people, especially your enemies, your tagline is, hey, my life or yours. That's at the heart of God. That's at the heart of our Christian character, our Christian ethic. But the problem is sin turns that operation upside down. I don't need to tell you. Because of sin, we enter the world and we say, your life or mine. We just become users. We get people around us that make sure we get, we're get we getting what we need. Yet Jesus comes into the world and he says, My life poured out on the cross for you. He, when he's crucified, says, Father, forgive them. They, they don't know what they're doing. These are the people who are putting him to death. My life for yours, Jesus says. So there are two ways to operate in this world, and we're all operating according to one of these two ways, your life for me or my life for yours. Which way do you operate? Your life for me or my life for yours? Or do you use both? Uh, Your life for me when you're doing a good thing, but if you're an enemy, no. No. I'm not going to give my life for yours. Last week, we talked about assessing first our position and then our practice, which is what we're going to get to here in a moment. But Be- Before we enter into practicing these things, and there's seven commands that God specifically lays out for us or Jesus specifically lays out for us, I wanted to last week say, okay, let's make sure we're in the right position. Before we enter into these difficult relationships or these challenging Uh, times with an enemy or anything that's going to create relational difficulty let's just make sure about us first let's make sure about our position before we have a practice at it and the reason that's so important to assess whether you're emotionally or mentally or spiritually in a position is because if you're not in the right position if you're not in the right mindset often you enter into these difficult things and you make it worse. I won't ask for a show of hands, but how many times have you entered into a problem, and when you left, the problem was bigger? For, for some reason, like you weren't ready, and when you entered in, sort of you blew up somehow. And now you have two problems. You have the problem that you were sort of entering into, but then you have the problem of, of you, your emotional instability. True story, I was listening to a podcast this week about a pastor whose name is Steve, and he was telling this story about himself. Steve is married. He's got a nine-month-old. He's packing up his house in Michigan. He's moving to California. He's a pastor in Michigan. He's moving to California to take a larger church. And it's the week before his move, and the people he had sold his house to Backed out right at the last second. Mm. His dad is fighting leukemia. One day during a snowstorm, the week that he's trying to move, Steve is out driving with his wife and his baby, and two junior high boys, try to imagine this, decide to use his car as snowball practice for Target's so they roll up the snowballs and, hey, the next car that comes by, we're going to throw it at Steve's car. And one hits his windshield and causes him to s- slide out to the side of the road. So Steve, the pastor, pulls out, gets out of his car, leaving his wife and nine-year-old behind, yelling, I'm going to find them. And to his wife and to his kid, to the boys, I see you two boys. So he ran through a waist-deep, icy ditch. He had to slide down a snowy embankment. He finally saw the two boys running into a garage and closing the garage, hoping to escape. So he ran up to the door, rang the doorbell feverishly. A grandfather answered and his junior high grandson standing behind him with a friend, out of breath. And just before Steve, the pastor, moving from Michigan to a larger church in California... Just before he unloaded, he heard this whisper from the Holy Spirit. Who's the crazy one here? (laughs) I mean, Steve, is it you or them? Your wife and nine-month-old son are on the side of the road in a snowstorm. And you are standing here soaking wet, wet pants, about to yell at two junior high school boys. What's going on? Where are you? See, it's so, don't you find this so difficult? Things are pressurized and just one more thing happens. And that's it. You go crazy, right? You leave your wife and child on the side of the road. You run after. And and you become a bigger problem. Because when, when before you practice, you haven't... Just say, what's my position here? Maybe I'm not quite ready or quite prepared to enter in. And so we talked about this last week, and I don't have time to to go through it all, but it was the GPS, remember? Find out our position. Are we willing to exercise the golden rule from verse 31? When, When you go into a heated conflict when you're entering into some sort of relationship that you feel like this person's an enemy will you treat them like you would want to be treated not like they deserve but like you would want to be treated is that your position as you enter in are you willing to p practice mercy i'm just entering in but i before i enter into this difficult thing i want to remember that god practiced mercy on me I was his enemy, and he came towards me in mercy. So as I go towards my enemy, God, may I come towards this person with mercy. And S, the speck and log from verse 41 and 42. Have I done some self-examination? Do I have any logs in my own eye that are going to prevent me from entering into a dialogue in a healthy way? I want to look at myself first. So that's all the lead up to this week, this uh, Sunday sermon, where we talk about practice. Now he gives, Jesus gives seven direct commands in these four verses that Jeremy read, and we've covered them a little bit, but I want to try to go through them one by one, and we don't have as much time to talk about each one, and you might just think, okay, these are seven, these are the ground level practices, this is where the rubber meets the road, which one of these do I need to specifically hear from the Lord today? I, I need to work on this one. You might think there's more than one. There probably is. But let's just think, what's, what's one I need to work on? And you see them in the text. First, love, verse 27. And I did mention this before, but let me remind ourselves that this word for love in the Greek it has a particular and special meaning. There's four different words for love in the greek and we translate them all love but they mean different things and in the greek you can have storge which is natural affection you could say i love my friend i have some natural affection towards them but that's not the word jesus chooses or you could say eros that's a romantic a passionate love that you might have for your spouse or phila that's a friendship He chose to use agape, which means choice. Choose. Choose your enemies. Choose to love your enemies. He's not talking about having any affection for them. That's something that you can't just produce. But you can choose. You can say, I realize they're an enemy, but I'm going to choose to go forward to them. Why do we do that? Well, because Jesus has chosen to come towards us and by us saying i know we're in trouble or this is going to be hard or you don't like me or whatever the case is i'm still going to choose to move forward c.s lewis maybe is helpful here in offering some clarity because whenever you say these things and you talk about Forgiveness particularly, there's always the person who has an extreme example in their life and they're wondering, what does it mean to love your enemies or to to love someone as you might love yourself? And C.S. Lewis, in his great book, Mere Christianity, has a chapter on forgiveness, and this is one thing he says. Does loving your enemies mean not punishing them? Does loving your enemies mean not punishing them. Does loving your enemies mean not drawing boundaries? Lewis says, no. Loving myself does not mean that I ought not, ought not to subject myself to punishment. If you had committed murder, the right Christian thing to do would be to give yourself up to the police for punishment. So you see, there's, there, there is a boundary there are consequences but this is what he goes on to say this is what forgiveness is yet when the punishment is given we must choose to feel about our enemy as we might feel about ourselves to wish that we weren't as that bad to hope that in this world or the next we could be good to wish the other person's good that's what it's meant by the bible by loving him wishing is good not feeling fond of him and saying, saying that he's nice when he's not. It's very helpful to have that clear in your mind because what can happen is it feels like, well, if I'm forgiving, then I'm just going to be run over like, like, a, like by a truck. And there's no boundaries and there's no consequences. And I don't think that's what they're saying. I think you are going to have to bear a burden for sure, but that doesn't mean it's without boundaries. The next two, do good and bless. So I'm choosing, I'm choosing to move towards the person. I'm trying to move towards the person as I would want somebody to move towards me. I'm choosing to move towards the person because God's moved towards me in, in, uh, in mercy. And I'm going to do good and bless. And I think it's easy to connect the, these commandments with the Good Samaritan parable that's just two chapters later, Luke chapter 10. If you remember the story Jesus is teaching and he says, love God and love your neighbor and a religious guy who I think didn't like all of his neighbors, that's the best I can say, didn't want to want to love some of his neighbors. I won't ask for a show of hands, but anybody here have a neighbor that's kind of hard to love, neighbor in your workplace, a neighbor on your team, neighbor in your dormitory, neighbor in your neighborhood. And this guy was, I think he was trying to weasel out of not having to love everybody just the same. And so Jesus tells him this uh, story. And we don't have time to go through the story, but what we know is this Samaritan, the, the person who would have been the enemy of the person that's hurt on the side of the road, he has three things that he highlights about the, Samar- the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan's first impulse was compassion. I'm going towards somebody who's wounded. I'm going towards somebody who might wound me back. But I'm going towards with compassion. I'm going to be willingly inconvenienced. I'm going to have to bear something if I go into this. And I'm willing to sacrifice a significant amount of my own treasure. so he tells that story and then he circles back to the religious man you remember the very end of the story he says okay who was the neighbor and you remember what the religious man said the one who showed mercy you see that's that's the center of being a christian this is the play you and i get to run over and over and over again my life for yours wonder how many moms or dads here this morning got to exercise my life for yours just this morning i've sacrificed my life for yours and i want my son or i want my daughter to know that because i want them to know jesus and they need to see my life for yours my life for yours so they can see jesus and then when they love jesus they can go out and say my life for you my life for that's the christian ethic that's flowing out of each person who follows christ pray number four perhaps you're so angry at your enemy you can't bring yourself to to choose to do good to bless but you can you can pray and when you pray you can just pray that you're not consumed By your own anger even if it's just a self-centered prayer like lord this is so difficult for me would you just help me not be consumed by it that that this difficult situation wouldn't define the rest of my life that it wouldn't spill out of me this abuse that i've received wouldn't spill out as abuse on other people just pray 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 maybe at the end of the prayer just say lord I wish that person the best. Maybe they can be changed in this world or the next. That's a choice that you can make. There was some somebody many years ago who had a real frustration with me, and I wasn't really sure why it was, but I could tell whenever I was with them, they always looked down. It was very obvious We'll look look down on you, Paul. And every Sunday, I drove by their house on the way to church. And it was hard because, you know, when you feel that all the time, you're just like, okay, I'll tell you who's down. You're down. I mean, you know, this isn't good preacher stuff, right? So I just pray. I wish them well. I wish them the best. I don't know what the frustration is, but I want good for them. That's something you can choose to do. Judge not. Condemn not. Two more here together. Almost everybody knows this Bible verse, even if you don't know anything else about the Bible, because it's frequently used. You probably used it like an escape hatch, right? Somebody comes towards you in some sort of judgment. Oh, who are you to judge? And then suddenly you've got a, your Bible you know, memory verse out. <laughs> so is Jesus saying we should suspend all critical thinking skills? Is that what he's saying here? Don't judge, just suspend all critical thinking skills. No, the answer to that is no. And th- we know it just from the text. How do you know if someone is your enemy or someone is evil or someone is ungrateful. Well, you've made a judgment about that. How do you know if someone's got a speck in their eye? Well, you've made a judgment about that. How do you know if somebody's giving good fruit or evil fruit? Well, you've exercised judgment of some kind. What he's talking about here and do not judge, he says in the parable of the log and the, log and the speck, don't judge hypocritically. When you, when you first encounter this conflict, step back and evaluate yourself. See if there's something in you that's creating the problem. It's very possible you're the bigger problem than the other person. So step back. Don't be hypocritical. Paul emphasizes this in Romans fourteen, ten. Why do you judge your brother? Then he clarifies what he means to say, Why do you look down on him? Don't look down, come down. finally forgive this is the hardest of all of them i think you know the this book the secret life of bees some of you know that book people general that's what it says people in general would rather die than forgive <laughs> it's that hard if god said in plain language i'm giving you a choice forgive or die a lot of people would go ahead and order their coffin c.s lewis We all agree that forgiveness is a beautiful idea until we have to practice it. I think we can agree forgiveness might be on all of our lists this morning. The word that Jesus uses for forgive means release. To release, to let go, or to let something die. I think in pictures, so it's helpful for me. Corey Ten Boom, who had a lot of forgiveness that she had to exercise. She says this, Forgiveness is like letting go of a rope attached to a big bell. So imagine you're pulling the rope. And finally you decide, I'm going to let go of the rope. When you let go of the rope, the bell keeps ringing. Momentum is still at work. However, if you keep your hands off the rope, and this is the key part, If you keep your hands off the rope, the bell will begin to slow and eventually stop. It's like that with forgiveness. When you decide to forgive, old feelings of of unforgiveness may continue to assert themselves for a while. But if you keep your hands off the rope, eventually that unforgiving spirit will begin to slow and eventually be still. So forgiveness, letting go of the rope. Anyone here have a rope they need to keep their hands off of? I mean, I've said I forgive, but oh, I like pulling the rope. There, I mean, there's so, is it just me? You get frustrated and you're like, it feels good to pull this rope right now. It feels good to give it back to you right now, and you just have to make the choice to say, I'm not going to pull that rope. So forgiveness, when we talk about this in the Bible, it means a couple of things that might be helpful, and again, it's really helpful to think about this and then try to talk about this because everybody has, it's like the Green Bay Suite. There's all kinds of little different nuances that come into your situation, but For sure, when you forgive, part of forgiving means that you pay. Part of forgiving means that you pay. My life for yours. When somebody offends you, when you extend forgiveness, in some way you're saying, I'm not going to make you pay. I'm going to have to absorb some kind of cost your offense so is the offense then simply forgotten if if I'm going to pay does it just means that it's forgotten the answer no by forgiving someone else you're not holding the debt against them you're holding the debt I've used this illustration for it's not perfect but let's just try to think of it this way Somehow you say something to me in the lobby, it sets me off. And we walk outside, and you're getting in your car, and I slam my fist on the hood of your car, and it creates a big dent. Now, let's hope this never happens, and if you're a visitor, this has never happened before. (laughs) Hopefully today will not be the first day, but I, I cause a $500 dent in your car. Oh, it's been a hard week, blah, 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 it's happened to me. Will you forgive me, Joe? And he says, "Paul, I forgive you. I walk away." Is the five hundred dollar dent gone? No. No. See, Joe still owns the dent, and what he's saying is, "I'm going to pay that down for you." When you're extending forgiveness, there's a dent has happened to you in your soul. And you're trying to forgive, but you still have the dent. It's not forgive and forget. We know it's not forgive and forget because when Jesus himself was risen from the grave, what did he say? Look at my hands and feet. See, we're not going to forget. We're not going to forget what we did. We're going to remember God's grace. So there's a dent that you have to bear, you have to pay. It doesn't just go away, but I want you to, I want to just say this as clearly as I can. Forgiveness doesn't mean there aren't any consequences. Somebody's working for the church and they're stealing. I will work to forgive them. I might have to pay what they stole, but they'll be fired. That's okay. Okay. I'm going to forgive, I'm going to forgive realizing I'm going to have to absorb some amount of cost. I'm going to forgive, and one way I'm going to forgive is I'm not going to keep giving oxygen to this event, and the way we typically do it is we keep bringing it up. You can have this happen in a marriage, it doesn't happen in mine, but I've heard about it. Where you know, you kind of get into a discussion, and what treasures get brought out? (laughs) Well, you remember back in 1985, you okay, all right, we're just bringing them back out, and you just give it life. It's like a little coal that, in order for it to die out, you can't give it any more oxygen, but every once in a while. want to blow on it just want to give it some life and it might not mean you say something but you you have a long conversation in your head how you hope it would go you ever done that i mean i'm not going to say anything but if i did this is exactly how it go so you're just giving it life giving it life giving it life and i'm afraid if you keep giving it life it will pop out burn you burn someone else so you have to stop giving it oxygen you have to let go of the rope. Let me close with this st- true story. Some of you will remember. In October of 2006, a gunman took children as hostages in an Amish schoolhouse. You remember this? It's in Pennsylvania, the end of the terrible event. Five children died, five wounded gunman committed suicide within hours the Amish community visited both the killer's immediate family and his parents each time they expressed sympathy for their loss and uniformly they expressed forgiveness for the murderer and his family and it ama- it's just amazed people how could you be like this four years later i didn't know this until this this week four years later a group of scholars got together to study this event so now it's 2010 they're looking back at this and this is what they concluded i thought it was very fascinating they decided that the amish ability to forgive was based on two things first at the heart of their faith Was a man dying for his enemies. Oh, so powerful. At the very heart of these people, what motivated them, what gave them purpose and meaning, was a man dying for them. Through, listen, through the communal practices of this self-sacrificing figure being seen and sung and believed and rehearsed and celebrated do you hear that every sunday we come and sing we will feast in the house of zion we will sing with our hearts restored he has done great things we're going to say it together and we will feast and weep no more see we're rehearsing we're rehearsing we're getting it down into our soul of what the truth is For Jesus to give his life and forgive his tormentors was an act of enormous love and spiritual strength, the Amish people thought. And so within their worldview, they gave forgiveness, and they saw that as the greatest gift and virtue. Second, they argued that this forgiveness is a form of self-renunciation. I have to pay. My life for yours. Giving up your perfect right to pay back to the person is what they didn't do. One, now these are the researchers, one of their main conclusions was that our current secular culture is not likely to produce people who can handle suffering the way the Amish did. Our current culture is just not wired that way. What the current culture sings and rehearses and sees is revenge, payback, your life or mine. This is the play. We have to rehearse. We have to memorize. We have to run over and over. And this is why we have communion. We're physically rehearsing the play. I mean, think about it. This is his life for ours. And we're remembering it. We're, we're digesting it. I'm so glad he just didn't give us something else. It's, it's something that's got to get inside of you. It's not like a, a candle you light and you put over here. No, this has to become part of who you are. My life or yours. So on the night Jesus was betrayed, when he said, my, my life, he meant my, my body, my Blood poured out, given for you. So we come together, those who have trusted in Christ, to take of his body and his blood together, remembering his life for ours. Let's take an eat. Taste it. If you're a follower, think about it going all the way down. Think about it hitting your circulatory system. His life for you. Mercy my life for yours let's pray oh lord there's so many questions here everybody has an enemy heartache many have some abusive situation and conjures up all kinds of questions and feelings and i pray your holy spirit would able to address those but however it gets addressed in all of our lives this is the play we must learn to run over and over again be merciful help us to see your mercy help it to capture our souls so that we might be merciful even to our enemies we pray in Jesus name Let's stand and sing our closing song.